Please turn to Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. While you're turning, here's some actual children's prayers. I love these. These, these are always fun. Dear God, please send a new baby for Mommy. The new baby you sent last week cries too much, Debbie. Dear God, who did you make smarter, boys or girls? My sister and I want to know, Jimmy. Mm-hmm. Settle that argument, huh? Uh, dear God, how many angels are there in heaven? I would like to be the first kid in my class to know the answer. <laughs> dear God, this is my prayer. Could you please give my brother some brains? So far, he doesn't have any. <laughs> Angela thought that. Huh? Dear Lord, thank you for the nice day today. You even fooled the TV weatherman, Hank. <laughs> I like that one. You ever notice how they just change the forecast and never acknowledge that they made a mistake? As it's supposed to be rainy today, now it's clear. They just changed the forecast and like nothing happened. I think that's fundamentally dishonest. Okay. Uh, dear God, please bring me a new brother. The one I got socks me all the time, Agnes. Dear God, please help me in school. I need help in spelling, adding, history, geography, and writing. I don't need help in anything else. That was signed Lois. <laughs> Dear God, do you have any helpers in heaven? I would like to be one of your helpers in heaven when I have a summer vacation. Natalie. Uh, well, there's an internship. Uh, Dear Lord, tomorrow is my birthday. Could you please put a rainbow in the sky? Susan. And this one, best of all, this guy has got the financial end of things down. Dear God, I need a raise in my allowance. Could you have one of your angels tell my father, please? Thank you, David. <laughs> I bet he'd get his raise if that happened, the angel. I am Gabriel, and David needs a raise in his allowance. <laughs> yes, sir. Okay. Well... Today we're going to be looking at one of the finest examples of intercession in the scriptures. And I, I deliberately am, am splitting chapter 9 of Daniel in two here because I don't want to give short shrift to the prayer that goes at the front of this. Um, Daniel shows us how it's done. And I'm really glad that God you know, inspired this. Um, we're now in that part of Daniel that has a particular message to Israel. And the prophet Daniel has been studying the scriptures. And he noticed that the time of the exile must be coming to an end. And that's what brings us to chapter 9 of Daniel. The very first verse then. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. Now, Daniel dates the vision as occurring in the first year of Darius the Mede. As we saw in chapter 6, and I won't go over all of it again, but Cyrus appointed a fellow named Gubaru, or the Greek form of that's Gobrias, it's a little easier to say. He appointed him the governor of Babylon. And from Daniel's Babylonian perspective, then, that would make Gobrias the king of Babylon, not the king of Persia. So he's not mistaken about Cyrus being the king of Persia, Darius being a later king of Persia, but rather it's just a matter of Darius being over what was left of Babylon when Persia took over. He was made king. 
he was caused to become king literally so it wasn't that he took the kingdom but he would be subordinate to Cyrus the great king the date is 539 BC this vision is subsequent to the visions of chapter 7 concerning the four empires that would come before the kingdom of God and chapter 8 concerning Persia and Greece. The vision is also subsequent to chapter 5, the famous handwriting on the wall incident. Um, but we don't have enough information to know how it fits with chapter 6, Daniel and the lion's den, whether this is after it or before, we don't know. So that's kind of how it fits in the overall scheme of things. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Now, Daniel was studying the scriptures, and he observed that God had revealed to Jeremiah that it would take 70 years to complete the desolation of Jerusalem. Now that excited Daniel because he was taken captive 67 years ago in 605 BC. So Daniel's going, hold it. I've been here 67 years, 70 years. We're getting close. It's almost over. He concluded, that, that led him to conclude that the, the captivity was almost at an end. Now, there's <laughs> two ways you can figure this. Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem in 606 BC. Daniel went into captivity 605. And Cyrus allowed the Jews to return in, next year after this vision in 538. That was 69 years. And if you allow some time to organize the return, I bet it happened 70 years later. Okay? That's one way to look at it. But it also talks about the desolation of the city. Babylon destroyed the temple and the city of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. That was later. And it was rebuilt in 515. Remember Ezra and Nehemiah. That was 71 years later. So really close to 70 years no matter which way you figure it. And the expositors are not really sure what to make of it. I think that doesn't really matter much, does it? Because God arranged it to where either way it's 70 years. Either way, 70 years worth of desolation were what was decreed for Jerusalem. And as we'll see when we get to the second half of this chapter, there is a good reason for that 70-year time span. But that's not part of today. Uh, although he was a prophet of God, note that Daniel considered scripture study a necessity. I find that very interesting because I actually have had somebody say to me, well, that's good for you, Hal. You can study the scripture and all that. But Al, I just get my stuff directly from God through the Holy Spirit. I don't really need to do that. Lois is smiling because she knows who I'm talking about. It wasn't her. <laughs> definitely not my sweet wife. Uh, but anyway, yeah, he didn't have that attitude that he didn't need Bible study, that he'd just get what he needed straight from God. Now, if anybody could have that attitude, a prophet of God would have some justification. Because his stuff became scripture. <laughs> but no, that was not Daniel's attitude. Paul wrote to his young protege, Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God. Literally, in the Greek, it's God-breathed. Uh, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. 
you don't out, outgrow studying scripture. I don't care how spiritual you think you are. You don't outgrow that. And it's very interesting to me. You know, it, it says that it's profitable for teaching. Tells you what the way is. It's for reproof. Tells you when you're off the track. It's for correction. Tells you how to get back on the track. And it's for training. Tells you how to keep on the track. All of this is the equipping of the Word of God and how critical that is. Daniel also confirmed the inspiration of two books of the Bible right here. Jeremiah and 2 Chronicles. And I didn't see 2 Chronicles until this time uh, of studying this. This is something that had eluded me before. But he called them the Word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet. By the way, this is the first time in Daniel that Daniel uses God's personal name, Yahweh. That's usually written as Lord in our English Bibles, because most people, Yahweh sounds a little strange. But uh, that's the actual name uh, of God. And in the context in which you usually see that is a covenantal context. Um, Daniel observed in the books, plural, not just one scroll, not just Jeremiah's scroll, but in the books, that this period would last 70 years. So he had to have found it in more, more than one place. Now, about three decades earlier, Jeremiah had prophesied in the 25th chapter of Jeremiah. Of course, there were no chapters in Daniel's Bible. There was just a scroll you would roll out. You'd probably say, well, about three-fourths of the way through the scroll. <laughs> You know, in that part where he's talking about the desolation of Jerusalem. Then uh, Jeremiah had prophesied this. This whole land will be a desolation and a horror. And these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will be when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity. And the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. Now it's interesting because this is one of those things where there's a valley in between the fulfillment peaks that you can't that the prophet didn't see. God did punish Babylon, but it didn't become a, a desolation immediately. That took time. It is a desolation today. Matter of fact, part of it's under the water table, so they have difficulty even excavating uh, the archaeologists do. But nonetheless. It was fulfilled exactly as, it's, as, uh, as it is here. So Babylon has become an everlasting desolation. And they did in fact serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Jeremiah also wrote in chapter 29, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you and bring you back to this place. Again, 70 years. And then in 2 Chronicles, it notes that the exile was to, quote, fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. Does that sound familiar? That's just what Daniel said. Until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. We'll talk more about that uh, later. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. Now, when you're doing Bible study, there's three main steps, by the way. They're worthy of remembering. Observation, interpretation, and application. Okay? Observation is, what does it say? Wow, what a concept. Actually, I call it the staring at the text part. Okay? <laughs> uh, 
is you know, my, if, I, if, if, if somebody asks me what's your, what's your big secret for Bible study I say read it over and over and over and over and over and then read it over some more it's kind of like watching a movie by the time you've seen it 20 times you start noticing little nuances or maybe little holes in the plot in the case of the movies you know, like one of the Star Trek movies where they're shooting up a, an elevator shaft and if you watch the numbers going by for the floors, they repeat, telling you that they looped it. Okay. Now, I didn't notice that until I'd watched that Star Trek movie more times than I want to admit. Uh, <laughs> okay. Or Hunt for Red October. My son and I watched that movie so much that we knew the Russian lines, you know, which is really well. Um, so... Observation. Then interpretation. What does it mean? What does it mean? Think about that. And then finally, application. Because God didn't give you just a bunch of disconnected facts. He wants us to apply it in our lives. Okay, those three steps. Observation, interpretation, application. Now, under interpretation, a key thing is correlation. What do other scriptures say? And Daniel was doing this, apparently. Not only was he seeing this in Second Chronicles, but also Jeremiah. And so he was correlating. He had the scrolls out, and he was going, well, yeah, it says this here, and it says that there, and that throws light on this. And it was a lot harder for him to do than it is for us. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't have computers, for instance, where you can go click, 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 and see all the scriptures that relate to that and that sort of thing. He had to drag scrolls around <laughs> and look at them. Okay. Um, so, the Bible, though, is its own best interpreter. Scripture best interprets Scripture. So, what does Second Chronicles mean here when it talks about 70 years? Well, gee, read Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29. Okay. What are all those weird beasts in the book of Revelation? Read Daniel. Or all those weird beasts in Daniel, read Revelation. <laughs> they throw light on each other, you know. So, that's correlation. And Daniel was doing it. Now, that brought Daniel to a prayer, though. And right away, I'm struck how often our knowledge of prophecy does not do that. Our knowledge of prophecy oftentimes brings us just to be puffed up that I know all the details when the rapture is going to happen, which, you know, I, I'm, I think that's important. Don't get me wrong. Or, you know, well, the Antichrist is going to come here and there's going to be ten nations and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. All of that's important, but what does it drive us to do? Does it drive us to our knees? It did Daniel. It drove him to prayer, and it should us also. You know, if Jesus Christ might come back at any minute and, the, and all the signs indicate that it's soon, it's soon rather than later, then, gee, what kind of an evangelist should I be? You know? What about those friends I'm putting off telling about Jesus Christ? What about those decisions in life I'm going, well, i got all the time in the world. No, you don't. <laughs> no, you do not. You know? What about that? It should drive me to seek God in prayer. It should drive me to change the way I live. Well, Daniel determined to seek God by prayer and supplication. The Hebrew word here, seek, for seek, is very interesting. Now, I don't want to do the my eyes glaze over thing, so I'm trying to minimize the number of Hebrew words I lay on you. But uh, one of them is bakash, 
Okay, and it means desire, demand, seek, ask, request something. You're looking for something to be done when you use bakash. In modern Hebrew, they say bavakasha. It means please. Okay. Uh, in the other Hebrew word for seek is darash. Okay. And they're probably easily confused because they both end in an A-S-H sound. So it's got darash and bakash. Okay, darash means to inquire, to investigate, to seek to understand something. Uh, the Hebrew word for commentary is midrash. It has darash in it there. And, and it means something which helps you understand. So on one hand, you're seeking to get something. On the other hand, you're seeking to understand something. Now, the pattern we see in the Old Testament was when they prayed, when they sought God, the one you see first is darash, to seek to understand. Seek to understand what God's doing, darash, and then seek bakash, what God, is, uh, God wants done. First, seek to understand what he's doing, then seek to understand and seek what he's what he's what he's doing, and then ask him to do it. See, prayer is not twisting God's arm to get what we want. That's what we think, and that's what's that's actually what's wrong with the entire name it and claim it philosophy. Is that that's the, the idea is that we've got God, you know, in an in an arm bar here, and we're twisting His arm and saying, "All right, give me what I want. Give me what I want." Is that how God is? First of all, He's so, He's the sovereign of the universe. You don't get Him in an arm lock anyway, guaranteed. Uh, okay, but secondly, um, God is more willing to bless you than you are able to receive it. I'm convinced of that. Absolutely. So that's not even the issue. But the issue here is, why would you want anything other than what his perfect will was? Okay, well, some of you are probably thinking, okay, if that's the case, then why prayer? Why doesn't God just do what he's going to do, and why do we have prayer? It actually is, for, I think, for our benefit. Prayer is on-the-job training to rule with Christ. To see God's will implemented on the earth. The way that he has established that that happens is through prayer. But our prayer is to be in line with his will rather than trying to get what we want. It's working with God to see his will implemented on the earth. First Chronicles says, and this is a beautiful verse, First Chronicles 16.11, because it's got both of those seekings in the same verse. Seek Darash, the Lord in his strength. Seek Bakash, his, faith, his face continually. So it's got both of them in the same verse. John writes in 1 John 5.14 and 15, This is the confidence which we have before him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that he hears us in whatever we ask. We know we have the request we have asked from him. So prayer according to the will of God is a powerful thing. Now, Daniel had chapter and verse. It doesn't get any better than that. You know? He said, wow, 70 years are almost up. There it is in three places in scripture. So he decided to exercise prayer and supplication. Now, prayer, and the Hebrew word for prayer here is the general word for prayer. Okay, it's a generic term, prayer in general. But the word translated supplications means 
a request for favor. A request for favor. It's an essence. Matter of fact, it has the word for grace embedded in it. It's a, requ it's a request for grace. Daniel was not seeking justice. Israel had had plenty of justice. They didn't need any more justice. They needed grace. Yeah. <laughs> they needed that God would give them what they manifestly did not deserve. Because they'd already gotten what they deserved. And that, that wasn't working out too well. That resulted in 70 years of captivity. They weren't seeking justice. They were seeking grace. Now the preparation for that, he included fasting, giving up food for a time. God may call you to do that. Uh, it's a, it allows you to make God your entire focus. No distractions. Wearing sackcloth and putting ashes on oneself, that was a symbol of mourning. And he was mourning over the sin of his people. But Daniel met the conditions for answered prayer. And in 2 Chronicles 7.14, there's that wonderful promise. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. Not all Joe Pagans out there, you know. But my people who are called by my name. Humble themselves and pray and seek my face. And turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. What stands in the way of revival in the church in the United States of America is not the pagans. It's not liberal theologians. It's not, it's not you know, who's in power in Congress. It's none of those things. It's the church. My people are the ones that need to repent. Now, Daniel made prayer a priority. He prayed to God, and as he was praying, he confessed. I find this one very interesting, too. Um, he confessed, first of all, to the Lord. He used God's covenant name again. And he was a righteous man, yet he confessed all these sins. See, the scriptures never record Daniel sinning. I'm not saying that Daniel didn't, but as we've talked about types before, he's kind of typical of, in a way of Christ because nobody can, nobody has anything on him. You know, uh, he he probably had some sins. I'm not saying that he probably got a little short tempered every once in a while, that sort of thing. But this is a very 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 righteous man, and yet he's identifying with the rest of Israel. In Daniel's mind, it's not they. It's we have sinned. This one kind of rocks me back. Because I got to tell you, sometimes my attitude is a little bit too much like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable. You know, who prayed, God, I thank you. I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over there. That's not the attitude God wants. In that parable, remember, Jesus said that it was the tax collector who went home justified and that the Pharisee's prayer didn't get any higher than the ceiling. He was praying to himself. Yeah. If we're praying, I thank you, I'm not like other people. Boy, I'm not like those guys. Well, you're part of the country. And, you know, Lord, I, I, I don't fund abortions. I don't abort babies. 
Yeah, but we haven't stopped it. We haven't stopped it, and I'm part of this country that hasn't stopped it. You know? This is a hard word, I know. And some of you, you know, probably going, oh. but <laughs> I'm really serious about this. That we need to, in our confession, identify, you know, with our countrymen. Because the thinking that we're cut better than basically denies grace. You know, it says that it forgets that we're part of this thing and we share in the guilt. So we can say, well, I didn't do it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now, Daniel, in his confession, moves in the next paragraph to look at the covenant keeper and the covenant breakers. Um, he says, Alas, Lord God... Uh, excuse me, alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and, keeps his com and keep his commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Daniel began his prayer focusing like a laser beam on God's nature. That's the very first thing in his mind, that God is great and awesome. Um, the Hebrew word translated awesome here is from a root that means to stand in awe of. Mind-boggling, we might say. Awe-inspiring, one translation has. It's also been translated, Lord, you are great and deserve respect as the only God. That's that sort of attitude of awe and reverence there. And then he moves to showing that God, besides being great and awesome, is also the covenant keeper. Now, covenant, we think like contracts in our country, in our country and we think, well, if a person, you know, if party A doesn't do their part, then party B doesn't have to. Well, actually, covenants were always a little one-sided because you swore before God an oath to do your part. And there's a particular type of covenant here that's called a suzerainty covenant. Now, fancy way of saying a king-subject covenant. It's a kind of covenant that a king would make his subjects take. And in that sort of covenant, a king would lay down the laws for his subjects. And then he would specify good things that would happen if they obeyed. We call those blessings. And he would specify bad things that would happen if they disobeyed. And we call those curses. Well, we have an example, a perfect example of this in Deuteronomy. The entire thing is laid out like a king-subject uh, treaty. And it's got a section, sure enough, of good things that happen and bad things that happen. You know, blessings and curses. God acts in righteousness towards those who love him and keep his commandments. That word loving kindness, rather, I'm sorry, he acts in loving kindness towards those who love him and keep his commandments. That word loving kindness means a joint obligation between relatives, friends, host, guest, master and servant. Closeness, solidarity, loyalty, faithfulness. It's a very hard word to translate, and you can tell by comparing a few translations, because there's a lot of different translations. Steadfast love, faithful love, unfailing love, loving kindness, covenant of love. 
Yeah, there's all kinds of different translations because it's kind of a hard concept for our Western mind to wrap ourselves around. But basically, the idea is that I I would I would probably translate it covenant loving kindness because it's in the context of a covenant relationship. God faithfully exercises that relationship. Now, notice his covenant only obligates him to those who love him and keep his commandments. That's, but that's not grace. Exactly. So what do you get? Well, you get justice. More on that. On the other hand, Daniel confesses that he and his people Israel, God keeps covenant. What have we done? We've broken it. We've broken it every which way. Uh, the word translated, we have sinned, means to miss a goal, go the wrong way. It's a general term. But Daniel also says that he and his people have committed iniquity. That means we've done wrong. We've done the wrong things. Um, Daniel says he and his people acted wickedly. Uh, he accused himself and his people of rebelling against God. Notice how he's identifying with them. It's us. We. Daniel um, said the rebellion consisted of turning aside from God's commandments and his ordinances. Uh, commandments refers to thou shalt, not, thou shalt and thou shalt not type commandments. Okay? But the word ordinances means uh, the kind of, a kind of law where it says if this occurs, this should be done. So we've got all types of laws, basically. But Daniel exhausts his vocabulary here. He's every way he can think of to say, we've blown it. We have sinned. And every, way, every type of God's law that there is, we have turned aside from that. Moreover, he adds to all of their guilt by claiming that they had refused to listen to the prophets of God. The Hebrew word translated listened here means to hear with attention, with interest, to be obedient. Uh, much like those grade B Middle Eastern movies that go, I hear and obey. You know, it's that sort of thing. It's the idea of obedience is built into the hearing. The prophets functioned as God's prosecuting attorneys, basically. They brought his lawsuit against the people for breaking the covenant. And... Did people ignore them? Yes, they did. The promises the prophets proclaimed in the future were all based on the blessings in the biblical covenants. The judgments were all based on the covenants too. The covenant curses. That's all they were doing was proclaiming that. So the indictment is all-encompassing. Daniel said it was not just the kings and princes. It was the elders and also all the people of the land. We have all sinned. Then he moves in the next paragraph to talk about what belongs to God and what belongs to us. He said, Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame as it is this day. To the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away in all the countries which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we've sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings, which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. So Daniel contrasts the righteousness that God has with the open shame that all Israel possesses. 
that uh, he takes God's side against his own sin. You know, that's really a mark of spiritual maturity. When somebody, you know, not only confesses, but they take God's side. You know, God is right. If God disciplines us, we deserved it. So, you know, that's Daniel's position here. He takes God's side against the sin of his own people. He acknowledges that God is righteous in all that he does. And he doesn't even exempt those who were exiled. You know, I mean, the exiles could say, well, I wasn't there. I was out of country. Yeah, Daniel goes, yeah, you're out of country because God kicked you out because of your sin. <laughs> okay, so nobody gets a pass here. Uh, Daniel sees everybody is covered in shame from the great to the small. But there's a glimmer of hope beginning to show up here because Daniel remembers that compassion and forgiveness are also aspects of God's character. You can't set one attribute of God against the others. They all work together. Yes, he is just. He's also loving. He's compassionate. And he also is strict. They all fit together. And that's shown by the fact that Israel ignored God's voice through the prophets. He re emphasizes it again. It's evidence that the prophets, by the way, are divinely inspired too because God's voice was speaking through them. And their sin is amplified in that they didn't reject just mere men and mere human opinions. They rejected men who spoke with God's voice. I care very little what anybody thinks of me. They may think I'm goofy or whatever. You know, that doesn't really matter too much. Yeah, you know, on a bad day it might bug me a little. But what I really care about is your reaction to the Word of God. That's where the authority is, not in me. My opinions, yeah, you can dismiss that and you won't be any of the worse for it. The Word of God, you dismiss that. That's a, that's a genuine loss. That is a genuine loss. So, Daniel ends this paragraph like he did the previous one, focusing on Israel's rejection of the prophets. Which leads to what happens when you're a covenant people and you reject God's prophets, you reject God's word. Well, the curse. Indeed, verse 11, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice, so the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God. For we have sinned against him. Thus he has confirmed his words which he has spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring on us great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what was done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not sought the favor of, of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. Daniel continued the theme of ignoring God's voice because Israel had sinned and ignored those sent to warn her. God had implemented the covenant curses. 
See, covenants have sections, like I said, of blessings for, for good behavior, curses for disobedience. The Mosaic Covenant, if you care to look these up, the, the blessings are all in chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, verses 1 through 14, and the curses are in Deuteronomy 28, verses 15 through 68. It's interesting, there's a lot more verses donated and, and devoted to cursing than there is to the blessing. Um, but specifically, three, th three things are mentioned here that I want to focus on that tie in here directly, and that is the exiles that are mentioned. Now when we say cursing by the way, I want to be clear, this is not cursing like, you know, using bad language. This is cursing like bad stuff is going to happen to you. Okay? And we'll see that with these. There were three exiles mentioned. And it's very interesting because this also has been fulfilled literally. The first was the Assyrian exile. The, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28 verses 36 and 37 says the Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known and there you shall serve other gods wood and stone you will become a horror a proverb and a taunt among all the people where the Lord God drives you now the Israelis and their fathers had known both Babylon and Egypt okay so, where are they talking about? Assyria, which was where the northern kingdom of Israel was exiled to. Well, they never really came back. Okay, and that you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a taunt. Anybody heard of the ten lost tribes of Israel? It's proverbial, right? Well, that's it. Uh, it's a proverbial saying, and that's the case. They're, yeah, as, as entities, as tribal entities, you know, they've largely been lost. The second was the Babylonian exile. And that's in verses 49 and 50. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you will not understand, a nation of fierce countenance who will have no respect for the old and show no favor to the young. Now, at this time, Moses did not say that Israel did not know the land. There's a reason for that. Where was Abraham from? Ur of the Chaldees. He was from the neighborhood. You know, he was an Iraqi in modern terms. So that's why they didn't say that this time. It's different than the Assyrian one. But the exiles originally did not know the language. Aramaic was not common among Jewish people until they came back from the exile. Okay? I mean, that's probably the language that Jesus spoke was Aramaic, at least most of the time. But, nonetheless, at that time period when they went into exile, remember that Daniel had to have three years training? They put him through a language school. So, the third and final exile that's predicted was the Roman exile. And it resulted in a worldwide dispersion of, the, of Israelites. The Jewish people are all over the world. Uh, Deuteronomy 28.62 says, Then you shall be left few in number, whereas you were once numerous as the stars of heaven. Because you did not obey the Lord your God, it will come about that as the Lord delighted over you to prosper you and multiply you, so the Lord will delight over you to make you perish and destroy you. 
You will be torn from the land where you are entering to possess it. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth, and there, there you will serve other gods, wood and stone, which you or your fathers have not known. Among those nations you will find no rest, and there will be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing of eyes, and despair of soul, so your life will hang in doubt before you, and you will be in dread night and day, and I have no assurance of your life. In the morning you will say, would that it were morning, evening rather, and at evening you will say, would that it were morning, because of the dread of your heart which you dread, and the sight of your eyes which you will see. Now that dispersion was fulfilled by the Romans, or they began it, I should say, in AD 70, and then they completed the job in AD 135 when the Jews rebelled a second time. Um, they crushed those revolts and they scattered them all over the world. And until 1948, this was the state of affairs. Now we're beginning to see the first glimmerings of a regathering. It's not what it's going to be. There's still more Jews living in New York State than there are in Israel. But that is, it is starting. It is starting. And the only other thing on their, on their horizon, just to throw it in, according to Revelation 13, the Antichrist will, at will attack. And there will be a, a, a persecution and a scattering there in the middle of the tribulation. Daniel observed that God faithfully fulfilled the curses of the law and curses of the covenant. And he confessed that even that literal fail, fulfillment of the curses of the Mosaic Covenant was not enough to bring Israel to repentance. He confessed that they still hadn't repented. And that was the reason why God had to invoke the curses. It's like if it doesn't get your attention, then he brings in a bigger and a bigger and a bigger paddle until something finally does. But again, Daniel took God's side and said that God was right to do so. It's been translated that God did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us. For the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now in the last paragraph of this, of this prayer, Daniel shows us what the real basis for prayer is. And that's the name of God. And now, verse 15, O Lord our God, who have, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and have made a name for yourself, as it is this day, we have sinned, we have been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach for all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, listen and take action for your own sake. O oh my God, do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. 
Daniel reminded God of the mighty way, not like God needed the, needed the reminder, but he is reminded of the mighty way God brought the people out of Egypt in the Exodus. That act earned God, deservedly, a great reputation, did it not? I mean, we're still talking about it. And Daniel interjects, of course, again, confessing his sin. He can't get too far away from that. But Daniel asked that God turn his wrath away from Jerusalem and Zion. Why? Because God's city and God's people have become a reproach to the surrounding peoples. Moses prayed the same way at the incident of the golden calf when he sought God's favor. He said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger. How many times do you hear things like, oh yeah, Americans are a Christian nation. Well, if this is Christianity, we have become a reproach. Yeah, because of our morals. Okay. God's reputation is at risk here. That's a basis for prayer. Daniel's concern is for God's reputation. He asked, he asked God to listen to his prayer for his own sake and be gracious to his ruined temple. Because the city that's called by God's name is desolate. Daniel clearly stated that he's not presenting his petitions based on his own merit. He's depending on God's great compassion. The word translated great there means abundant. It's been translated, we're not presenting our petitions before you based on our righteous acts, but based on your abundant compassion. God in his grace gives us what we clearly do not deserve, and in his mercy does not give us what we deserve. And Daniel understood that. That's what we need. May God have mercy on the United States of America. I do not cry for justice. <laughs> I want mercy. And Daniel understood that. Daniel asked God to hear, forgive, listen, and take action. And his concern was for God's own sake, lest his reputation suffer, because his people and his city bear his name. One has observed that to Daniel it was more important for the God of Israel to retain his integrity and uphold his moral law than for guilty people to escape the consequences of their infidelity. Our overarching concern when we pray has got to be for God's reputation, not our predicament. Do we pray because we're in hot water? Or do we pray because we're concerned for the reputation of God? We're, con we're concerned for the plan of God to carry forward. That's the basis for prayer. How do we apply this? Two main areas in intercession... We need to identify with our countrymen in confession of sin. Avoid the attitude of the Pharisee that says, I thank thee, O God, like I'm not, that I'm not like all these other guys. That's the wrong attitude. And our, in our prayers, our concern must be to see God's will done and his reputation enhanced. Personally, 
prayer is not twisting God's arm to get our way. It's working with God to see His will implemented on the earth. Our knowledge of prophecy ought to drive us to our knees. And again, watch out for that pharisaical attitude. It's poison. You know, I thank thee, O God, that I'm not like other people. Because uh. <laughs> in, in reality, we are like other people. <laughs> and every one of us is a sinner saved by grace if we're saved. By, faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. Because we have nothing to offer. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, I thank you for pulling back the curtain and letting us see this, this intercessor at work. And letting us see the attitude that you built into the life of this godly man. Father, may we have the same attitude that grieves over our sin as a people. And that sees our part in it. Lord, may we also have a firm grasp on your grace. And we call upon you to be gracious to our, to our land, to be gracious to our, our state, and to be gracious to us. Not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to your grace, our petition is unto you. In Jesus' name, amen. Yes. I just have a feeling that, that um, I'm just getting a lot of prayers that they have in their heart, mm -hmm. you know, from people, from people um, here. And so I, I just think that they need to be allowed to say that. Say the time of prayer? You can feel it. Yeah, I can feel it. Sure. Um, Okay, well let's let's just do that for a few minutes and anybody that feels led, uh, just pray. Then I'll close this up for a while. Well, okay, I just wanna just um, strip away the um, the feeling of fear uh, that when you go to church it's not a how you dress or how you look or how you are accepted is just loving you and knowing that you have a plan for all of this, you have a will for all of this and that we need to look inside ourselves and how wonderful that you've given this little church to be a beacon. I mean, I really feel it is a beacon, otherwise it wouldn't be after this long. Of, of truth that everything else is kind of stripped away and I just thank you Father God for, for letting our sh us shine and still be here and just to, to strip away the, the all the folder all that that people feel when they, they go to church just to just to have, seek a real, a real relationship with you
here, oh Lord, forgive. Pray that you'll forgive us for, for not leading this nation morally. And lead us into the path that you would have us all to do that, Lord. Turn us towards you. we thank you for hearing the prayers of our hearts those spoken and those silent and Lord we just humbly ask you to have mercy for your namesake that our lives our church our country may lift you up and exalt your reputation in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.